I firmly believe that the principles of the scientific method established over the last several hundred years are the same in physics as they are in nutrition. To determine proof, there are certain fundamental principles of science that I believe are no different in nutrition or in, in uh, the age of the universe, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, the problem is not that the principles are different, and many people try to claim that the science of nutrition is different somehow. I think that's a slippery slope. The principles of proof are the same. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Methodology Matters. Brad, how are you doing today? I'm good, Matt. Good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, I'm very excited about our discussion today. Uh, we're talking about our uh, the part two of our interview with Dr. Dennis Beer. And uh, today we're digging a little deeper into, uh, I think, more of the science behind what the two of you talked about, you know, rather than uh, you know, previously we uh, got a nice view of what running a scientific journal is like and kind of where uh, studies come from and how you sort through them, right? Here, we're hearing from Dr. Beer about kind of the standards of evidence in nutrition science and what he's seen. And uh, uh, we're getting a little more into the nuts and bolts of the scientific research. Yeah, exactly. The standards of evidence. He talks a lot about that. He, um, we talk a bit about um, causal language, which we've done before. Mm -hmm the importance of um, protocols um, in, in terms of driving your, your research um, and yep. your analyses. Yeah. So it's uh, looking forward to sharing this, this interview with, with our audience. Yeah, I think it's great. Uh, uh, he's a wealth of knowledge. He really is. So you mentioned uh, causal versus associative language. We've talked about this a little bit before, but like just as a, just as a brief review, um, you know, what would we consider, causal language versus associative language or, you know, uh, how do we determine when things are causal uh, uh, or when they're, they just have associative properties? Oh, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> you know, Denny talks about how difficult it is to actually differentiate causal language sometimes. He, he uses an example yeah. from the epidemiology world of, a, of attributable risk or attributable um, uh, yeah, I think it's attributable risk. And um, mm -hmm. he basically says, well, we use this term often in the space of observational data, but just by the term alone, it almost sounds like it's causal. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I've been involved in research papers before when the editors have said, you know, remove the causal language or tone it down a bit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I go through my own work and, and it mm -hmm. is, it's actually sometimes challenging to understand what's causal in the way things are worded versus what's not. And it's obviously, there's no clear answer sometimes, right? Like yeah. the use of the term impact, you know, um, yeah. low carbohydrate diets impact um, the risk of outcome X. Mm -hmm. That's almost causal in nature. Um, yeah. But, you know, some might argue that it's not. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it seems like rather than a, a very distinct line between causal language and associative language, there's sort of a, a, a wide gray area, shall we say. Yeah, and then he says um, in his experience at the AJCN, mm -hmm. um, 
you know, it's very interesting how often this causal language still seems to, you know, even after you spend a lot of time trying to get it out of manuscripts, it still seems to kind of creep in or stay in certain parts of the manuscript often, which can be problematic, especially when um, it's a someone that's more novice at maybe reading mm-hmm. the paper or a journalist that's reading the paper. The distinction is is really important. You know, we, we hear a lot about this idea of correlation. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, there's many things that are correlated, mm-hmm. um, but that doesn't mean that they're causal in nature. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and you can find a quick search on the internet will find some very extreme examples of this, <laughs> yes. which I would encourage all of our listeners to do for a good laugh. Um, but it does sound like, uh, uh, you know, the root of this is really that we, uh, uh, that when scientific papers are being published, both the editors and the authors have to be very specific about, uh, what they're sure of and what they're not sure of and, uh, and crafting language that is in line with that. Yeah. Um, you know, and Denny, Denny comments about, uh, we'll have to get a citation for this, but he says about Mm -hmm. 90% of published papers have at least one positive finding. And he says, well, you know, we're not that good. How, <laughs> how is it? You know, what's really going yeah. on? Is, is it, you know, if we do 100 experiments, are, are 90 of them really um, uh, have a positive finding? Is that true? Uh, yeah. Somehow that feels like it's probably not true in, in, in the ultimate reality. But for some reason, the scientific literature seems to suggest that we often do find these um, positive findings, which is slightly odd. Yeah. Uh, uh, statistically, that seems, it, it sounds a little bit like, a, a, it's like a line from Anchorman. It's like 70% of the time it works all the time. It's like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> 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 so uh, I wanted to also bring up, um, Dr. Beer talks about the difference between observational data and interventional data. And I feel like uh, I have a, a very rudimentary understanding of that. I'd love for you to kind of expound on that a little bit uh, so that uh, so that those of us that are listening to this with not, shall we say, as storied of a scientific background as Dr. Beer or yourself uh, might start with some clarification about those terms. Yeah, sure. Great question. Um, so observational studies, there's many different study designs um, in nutrition or nutritional epidemiology. Probably the most popular one is a cohort study, typically prospective in nature where mm-hmm. scientists essentially um, observe a population over time while documenting certain risk factors or exposures such as smoking, weight, alcohol use, and mm-hmm. they also document health outcomes. Um, Mm. and they might follow these people for 10, 20, 30, 40 years and they do statistical analyses and they often find associations or correlations, Mm. Mm -hmm. which are not, you know, uh, one has to be very careful uh, about whether it's an association or, or or causation. And it's typically Mm -hmm. associative in nature Gotcha. versus an experimental study you know, observational studies are in free living human beings. Yeah. Whereas experimental studies, they're often allowed to continue to live freely, but we um, manipulate um, something, we give an intervention. So you get, for example, randomized Mm -hmm. to peanut butter or no peanut butter or usual peanut butter intake versus lower peanut butter intake or um, to a drug um, versus a placebo. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You mentioned peanut butter. 
based on my understanding uh, uh, of of what you just said, you know, if I uh, if I was trying to construct a study that was like, uh, does eating peanut butter cause cancer? Then, like, an observational study would be, you know, I've got uh, 100,000 people and I send them out a questionnaire that says, uh, have you ever eaten peanut butter and do you have cancer? And they give those answers back to me and I analyze that data and see if there's any association between eating peanut butter and having cancer. But Mm -hmm. in an interventional sense, it's more like I would take a smaller group of people and randomly assign them to the control group where they eat no peanut butter or uh, or continue to eat peanut butter undirected. And then the interventional group where they eat a certain amount of peanut butter and then we see if anybody gets cancer. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, exactly. That's a great analogy. Um, I, I think the main thing is you'd have to have a decrement in difference between peanut peanut butter and the experimental arm versus the control arm. So gotcha. Yeah. So maybe the control group continues peanut butter as normal as -hmm. you suggested. And the experimental group is asked to abstain from peanut butter if that's ethically um, okay. I'm assuming it it is, but you you never know. (laughs) Um, You know, it's like, this is quite easy in drug studies because people yeah. get a placebo that looks exactly the same, hopefully, as uh, as the drug. And the drug is standardized to a certain yeah. amount of ASA aspirin, for example, or a certain mm-hmm. amount of, of some active component, like 50 mm-hmm. milligrams of X. Um, and the placebo has nothing. So there's yeah. there's a real difference between the two groups. Um, that's much harder to achieve in nutrition science. Typically, if, Mm -hmm. if the intervention is, is diet oriented. Now, of course you can do nutrition studies where you give people a probiotic versus a placebo or vitamin D versus a placebo. Yeah. Those are, are easier studies to do, um, and kind of reflect a, a drug paradigm, if you will. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I, I hope that if somebody does that peanut butter study, they don't find anything because I think peanut butter is delicious. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you mentioned, uh, uh, and I'm glad that you brought it up, you mentioned kind of the difference between uh, you know, us being able to do a nutritional intervention uh, versus a drug intervention and how easy it is as far as uh, you know, like drug placebo, uh, you know, taking, a, taking an actual pill or let's say a nutritional supplement and taking a placebo that looks exactly the same it kind of leads us into uh, uh, the importance of observational data, right? I mean, it sounds like interventional data can produce science that we're more sure about, shall we say. I'll I'll use in layman's terms, right? Mm -hmm. But also it feels like observational data is more like kind of a breeding ground for hypotheses and ideas. And uh, and while that data might not, we, we might not be as sure about that data as we could be, it sounds like it's it's a really important step in the scientific process. And one of the things that, and Dr. Beer mentions this too in the interview, like whether you're A, physically able to do uh, to do an intervention or B, whether it's like, uh, whether you're allowed to uh, vis-a-vis ethics, you know? Yeah, um, it, it's well known that in nutrition science, a lot of the dietary guidelines, for example, or a lot of the things that maybe a nutritionist might recommend are based on observational data. Yeah. And the question is if we're if we're interested in standards of evidence and knowing what the certainty of that evidence is, 
the question is, how do we best determine that? And there's been mm. lots of debate in the field of nutrition about whether um, we should or shouldn't use um, the grade methodology, for example. Yeah. And then Denny, Denny gets into talking about, uh, and I have to agree with him on this, um, he says that many people in, in nutrition claim that the science of nutrition is somehow different. Mm-hmm. And, and he goes on to say that um, his belief is that, you know, the principles of proof are the same, um, regardless of what field you're in. And I, I believe that to be true. And I think a lot of people in nutrition do as well. The standards of evidence um, mm-hmm. really should be the same in nutrition, medicine, pharmacology, exercise science, physiotherapy, you name it. Like mm-hmm. we should ideally be using the same standards of evidence to look at the certainty of evidence regardless of what our research question is so that we can compare apples to apples yeah that's interesting it makes me think of uh uh you know and and somewhere like uh, somewhere a retired uh pta member is uh, is silently clapping for this my high school science teacher freshman year of high school mr livingston he was the first person that ever sort of taught us the scientific method right and uh, he was a lovely teacher and uh, just a wonderful guy, but also like very strict as far as the methodology he was teaching us. And what we learned from him was essentially that like observational data leads to interventional data, right? Like you can't uh, you can't just say, let's do this really strict experiment to try and find outcome X without having sort of, I guess, observations or documented observations or ob- observational data to support, you know, doing a more serious study, right? So it seems to me like observational data has a really important role in nutrition, but not the role that interventional data has. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, it's got a huge role. And Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, there's a lot of nutrition questions that we can't feasibly randomize people to or follow people long enough for or feed people long enough for in order to really get the answer that we would like to have. Sure. But it doesn't mean that we should be uh, flimsical, if you will, about what the mm-hmm. standards are. You know, the standards of proof um, should be the same in whatever field of science you're in, you know? Yeah. Like, as you can tell, I do believe this. <laughs> I, sure. I, um, but it's, it's an area of debate. So, mm. and that's what makes science fun. Yeah, yeah. I think it, uh, I think it's great. Uh, it's great to sort of like um, lay all these different points of view out there. I love that Dr. Beer talks about it as well, you know, because I think it's easy for like somebody like yourself who is, you know, evidence-based in nature to get sort of labeled with the like observational, bad, interventional, good. And, you know, all, all we want is randomized control trials and nothing, uh, nothing in between. You know, it's not quite as accurate maybe as as one might think. Uh, but I love, I, I love that Dr. Beer just essentially says like, you know, good, good science is good science. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, it's important to keep your mind open and avoid our almost natural habit of ideology yeah. and motivated reasoning. What was that quote that we, that I think we talked about in an earlier episode from, um, Richard Feynman, um, the job of a scientist is to not let the data um, trick you, 
and you're the easiest person to trick something like that um, <laughs> yeah 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 which yeah. is is very true and maybe i'll just say too um really interesting mm-hmm. there's been a recent study in the ajcn oh yeah that looked at um how often authors of systematic reviews of cohort studies assess the certainty of evidence so it was a study by dena zaratkar and uh, Russell D'Souza and team at McMaster University in Canada. And mm-hmm. they, they did a random sample of 150 systematic reviews of nutritional epidemiology studies. And they found that less than 11% of studies actually um, rated the certainty of the evidence. So in other words, they wow. find an estimate of effect for yeah. peanut butter for um, and its association with, let's say, diabetes. Sure. And they tend to not look at, not, not talk about the certainty of that estimate of effect, right? You have, let's say, a, a 2% risk reduction, but how certain are we in that 2%? Um, right. For whatever reason, um, I think nutrition science is behind, let's say, medicine um, mm-hmm. when it comes to people embracing mm-hmm. this, this concept of certainty of evidence. And Denny talks about, this as being one of the biggest advances in medicine and in, in the health sciences over the last 20 years, kind of the um, it's been led by the grade working group, I think, but there's other groups as well that work within this space. You know, this, this idea of certainty of evidence Mm -hmm. and using that in addition to our best estimate of effect to help people make better decisions. Gotcha. I love that. Uh, I feel so smart when we talk about, standards of evidence and certainty of evidence and best estimate of effect. It's great. I, you know, you're a science guy. It's like all in your, all in your daily routine, but it makes me feel fantastic about myself. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I'm glad we're having that effect, Matt. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, uh, so we'll link to the uh, AJCN article uh, in the show notes because I think it's a really great read, uh, especially when compared to this interview that you had with Dr. Beer. The two of you talk about some really great stuff. Without further ado, uh, here is part two of our interview with Dr. Dennis Beer, former editor of the AJCN. With respect to the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition and the field of nutrition, what is your sense of the quality of the methods that are used with respect to applied nutrition research? Well, this is, a, you know, I, I think this is, in a sense, one of the most crucial issues in any field, but certainly in nutrition. I firmly believe that the principles of the scientific method established over the last several hundred years are the same in physics as they are in nutrition. To determine proof, there are certain fundamental principles of science that I believe are no different in nutrition or in in, uh, the age of the universe, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, The problem is not that the principles are different, and many people try to claim that the science of nutrition is different somehow. I think that's a slippery slope. The principles of proof are the same. What's different is your ability to actually carry out the principles. So in many ways, for example, certain experiments on the age of the sun are easier than certain human experiments because the ethical issues of experimenting in humans don't apply. Human behavior doesn't come into place. Uh, Longitudinal behaviors of eat 
following a diet for 20 or 30 years, you know, doesn't come into place. Mm -hmm. So it's the fact that we can't always achieve the level of proof that we would like to have. And there are several, you know, uh, kind of approaches to this. One is, well, first, the continued search for ethically acceptable ways to experiment in humans to try to determine causality, because you can't determine causality with an intervention. And when you're doing something to a human being, you have to have a way of doing it in a totally ethically acceptable fashion. Mm-hmm. And even the ethics, you know, can depend different on the country involved, uh, the people involved. But, we, but that's, that's a, a principal methodologic goal in human studies is to find acceptable methods that get us closer to causality. And is there, can you think of a, is there an example in nutrition where there may be ethical implications that don't allow us to be as experimental as we'd like to be? Things like breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. Okay. At least among human populations, it's not generally considered uh, ethically acceptable to randomize women into whether they should breastfeed or not. Mm -hmm. So all breastfeeding studies at the beginning depend on women who want to breastfeed and accept that and women who don't and accept an alternative. So right away, you don't have a truly randomized blinded study. Right. There are lots of other interventions that are fundamentally impossible to blind or almost impossible, and therefore they're flawed to begin with. Or, or not only impossible to blind, but impossible to uh, provide allocation concealment. Someone has to give the treatment so they know it's given. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, we have come a long way in that because, as you know, I think you know, we now have mock surgeries being done. Mm-hmm. which patients, adults, accept, you know, as part of a randomized trial. And many of those have shown that surgical procedures that everyone thought were really wonderfully magic occurred just as well in the people who got the box surgery. There, it's, you know, it wasn't the procedure itself. Okay, so these things happen. But the principal one are, are the ones you identify, the differences between observational and and interventional research in diets for long-term benefit. That is, you know, the, the issue that's on the major plate of nutritional science today. So in the first half of the 20th century, we determined the essential nutrients. And we determine those because people who are deficient in the essential nutrients, when those are replaced, their signs and symptoms of whatever the consequent disease is go away. So we were able to do important interventional experiments that benefited the patient with a hard endpoint. They got better. Mm-hmm. We've now moved into an era where people want to make predictions of the change in risk over a long period of time based on diet changes, which not everybody benefits by. It's not like everybody is deficient and suddenly gets better. Mm -hmm. So we have to deal with a a very different paradigm. And we also have to deal with the practicalities of you you can't blind most diets. You can change them, but you can't necessarily blind them. You have to deal with the fact that people may need to keep this 
interventional diet for 20 or 30 years to show a long-term benefit. That's almost impossible. Mm -hmm. And in addition, what we, I think one of the biggest things we know in human interventions is that the human being lives in this environmental exosome, which historically includes a handful of things we know about, like uh, socioeconomic class and education and things of this nature. And that has persisted in observational epidemiology and observational nutrition because we know about them and some of them we can measure. But what we now know through all of the activities in big data over the last 20 years is that those variables are not two or three or five confounding covariates. There are a hundred and no one yet knows how to deal with those 60, 80, 100, 200 covariates. When observational studies are done, you show an association between X, whatever you've chosen, and, and Y. But you haven't been able to deal with all the covariates. It may not be X at all. It may be Q or A, B plus C. And we've just not been measuring those. You know, to me, the paradigm that you can assign implied causality from knowing the association of X and Y no longer applies. Mm. We, We no longer can say that with any degree of confidence. The, the epidemiologists and the observational researchers all know that an association is not causal. It's an association. But they wouldn't be doing the studies unless they thought it was causal. Who would care whether eating pepperoni pizza was associated with the outcome of pregnancy unless there was a causal, causal link? <laughs> Otherwise, who would care? So they all think there's a causal link. And they want to imply a causal link. And even though they know better, the observational literature is filled with implied causality. This is one of the major jobs of editors is to take out causal words from studies in which they only showed associations. It's astonishing how many causal words can creep into a manuscript, particularly Mm -hmm. into the conclusion of the abstract when they've taken it out of all the text in the paper. It stays in the conclusion of the abstract, right? Yeah, well, and even the Journal of the American Medical Association doesn't even allow one to use causal language for uh, systematic reviews of randomized trials, for example. Right, but that's very subtle. You have to be really alert and educated to what is a causal word. And they appear everywhere Mm -hmm. in very subtle ways. And in some cases, I believe, the observational uh, community in the past has gotten them accepted. So, for example, we have things like attributable risk. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's a causal association to me. Yeah. And it's the accepted term mm-hmm. in, <laughs> in certain kinds of observational research. I mean, that I, I believe that the observational research people got that as the accepted term because it, then they don't have to worry about implied causality. It's right there. So, Dr. Beer, even even if the editors do a great job of getting the causal language out of the manuscript and the manuscript is penned in a way that's very cautionary, then one has to deal with what journalists do. They um, then may start to use causal language. Well, by the way, I, I agree with that, but I think I'd like to step back one 
step before the journalist, right? So mm-hmm. at the end of every paper, most papers or many papers, there's a section about limitations. The limitations are almost always boilerplate language that start out with the assumption that the association I showed you was in some way correct. <laughs> I mean, right? they never start out with saying, this may have nothing to do with it at all. <laughs> you see, I mean, you know, it's, they, the, 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 the limitations are always in here. We've shown you the nucleus of the right answer. And we're not entirely sure because we haven't dotted all the I's and crossed the T's. They never start out with the fact that this may not in be any way the variable responsible for the, for the association. Mm-hmm. So it starts out with the authors. And, and as you well know, 90% of the literature, 90 plus percent of the papers that are published include at least one positive finding. That's just impossible. Mm-hmm. We're not that good. You know, it, it's impossible. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, is that people have the human trait of wanting to be right, wanting to show something positive. So all the wording in the papers, how they couch the limitations of things are, we've actually got it. It may not be as good as we want, but we've got something here. Mm-hmm. And then they pass that on to the journalists. I think if if the scientists themselves were frank with the journalists from the start, we'd have less of that. Mm-hmm. And there are, you know, a few journalists who always preface their their articles with things about causality and stuff. Although now I've noticed that this is my opinion, by the way, I have no data for this. I've noticed that maybe in the last 10 years, the words, remember, association is not causality, appear more than they used to. Mm-hmm. The frankness of how good your evidence is, people don't want to admit they don't have the highest quality evidence. Mm-hmm. I, I have no objection to coming to that point. In fact, there are there are places we can't get by today's ethical constraints and human behavior to the highest quality evidence. But that doesn't mean you promote the evidence you got to the next level, right? You have to stop where you got it. And that's the issue. There's a pervasive promotion of the levels of evidence. We also need to start having more emphasis placed on the confidence we have around our estimates, not just what our estimates are. And and I've said this about medical education for all the audience that may want to go to medical school. Medical school spend all their time on what we know and not so much time on what we don't know when we don't know far more than we know, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I think we, we, we need to understand how good our opinion is. And, uh, you know, this is a, a critical issue in all scientific publications. There has to be a way of conveying how confident you are in, in, in what the outcomes are. And of, and of course, that there is methodology developed for that. Yes, that's one of the biggest advances in the medical literature in the last 20 years. Far more emphasis on the confidence intervals and the certainty with which you can say things. And that's been now codified in various reporting requirements, which I think have improved the quality of the literature immensely. Mm-hmm. Same time, we haven't really got the same level of uh, oh, rigor, let me say it that way, in the inflow end. That is, 
the registration and the complete availability of data sets, pre-description of data analytical methods, pre-description of terms that are used willy-nilly in papers such as validation. I don't think I've ever read a paper which told me in the registration document how close the association had to be to be valid. It's always after the fact. It's good enough. Well, we, we thought we'd get 80%. We got 65. That's good enough. <laughs> so we've made a lot of progress on the reporting end and on the grading end. People like Gordon Guyatt, those, you know, those that we've made great progress, even though it's still a small fraction of the scientists who, who embrace this as making their work better. We have far more to go at the front end to make people put their cards on the table before they make a conclusion. And, you know, when I was a young person, all the, the scientists who taught about publications would say, the first thing you do is read an abstract, read the abstract and see what the, they're claiming. Well, I no longer believe that. I believe the first thing you do is read the registration document. Excellent. Yeah. The registration document lays out what they say they're going to do. And it's extraordinarily remarkable to me how many papers don't do it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally agree. The registration document has X as the primary outcome variable. You read the manuscript, it talks about Y, Z, A, B, C. X never shows up. Or it shows up as line 12 in table six. Never mentioned, right? You know, yeah. okay. So a, a priori study protocols, and in particular detailed study protocols that lay out the statistical analysis that'll be done that lays out the outcomes of interest, all of the outcomes of interest, what's primary, what's secondary, that lays out your, your subgroups of interest, including ideally the anticipated direction of effect that you think you might see in males versus females, if that's a subgroup of interest. And, and, or how are you going to analyze the data? So you perfectly well, we're going to analyze the data by method X. And then you look at the paper. Method X doesn't show up at all. Now, you know they did method X first, right? If that was the, you know, it's not in the, this used to be a problem to say, well, I've analyzed it by three methods, but now this is easy. You have supplementary material on the web. All of these things can be put up. Mm -hmm. Or very simple things like you have an observational study and the, the groups are divided into quintiles. Well, you know, your last paper was quartiles and the next paper was sextiles. Well, why are they different, right? I mean, never told about the number of observations that you actually made so that you can determine what, you know, a realistic assessment of false discovery rate is. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great points. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes of Methodology Matters, please head over to methodologymatters.podbean.com or you can find us on Spotify and on Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Dennis Spear, you can find his faculty profile at Baylor College of Medicine's website linked in the show notes for this episode below. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you on the next episode of Methodology Matters, a podcast on evidence-based nutrition.